Shake the jukebox, it's so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh yeah! Hello and welcome to Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louie Perlman. And I'm Kyle Norton. <laughs> that was I'm so back, baby. I'm back. That was so loud that the mic cut you off. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. A, um, it's that gated uh, mic uh, thing. Yeah, it's that gated mic thing. That was very good. You gave me a look right before you did it. Like, oh, I got a good one this time. <laughs> like, I'm really going to do it. something to repair my reputation. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, I'm only critical of your intros just so that you can get better. You know that, right? Yes, of course. I know. It's all, it's all constructive. It's all constructive. <laughs> so this is Kick the Jukebox. This is the podcast where me and Kyle take a deep dive into an album of the week. This week, uh, the album of the week is... 1969's Stand by Sly and the Family Stone. It's also a examination of our friendship and our processing of 20th century popular music and how it made us into the people that we are today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm going to change that intro every single time. That was so, a good one, though. That was good. Yeah, I felt good about that one. So you can check us out on social media. We're at Kick the Jukebox on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. And you can rate and review us on iTunes if you're enjoying what you're hearing so kyle how are you what's going on what have you been listening to during these strange and transitionary times we're now in i don't even want to call it the quarantine anymore because we're really we're really growing past that into a whole other thing so very true so i'm doing great i'm thriving uh what have i been listening to um i've actually had a beatles week um, you got You got to get a few of those in every now and then. Yeah, uh, I, I like was, the Beatles. <laughs> I like the Beatles too, and I. Um, it was kind of a whirlwind of things. I just started listening to the White Album kind of every morning. Sure. Um, I don't know why. It's just a. I just like to revisit that. I have the. I got this Google Home Mini, which is like I got it like a few months ago, mm. and you, you get it free if you have a Spotify. They used to have this thing where you got it free. Um, if you had a premium Spotify membership. So they sent me a free Google Home Mini and it has changed my life for one reason in that I can finally pick the song that I wake up to in the morning. Yes. That is so crucial to me. And I can't tell you how long I was looking for like an alarm clock app where you could hook it up to Spotify and it just doesn't exist. Google Home Mini is like the only thing that does it. Yeah. So the song I've been waking up to uh, has been Good Day sunshine oh yeah it really depends i i am all over the map sometimes it's like more jazz sometimes it'll be like more acoustic but yeah i've just i mean it really is just the best song to wake up to um and then the last thing was just i finally saw the ron howard documentary eight days a week Mm -hmm. um, which was great kind of talking about the touring years so 
Mm-hmm. I've had a big Beatles week. That's cool. I was actually just yesterday on the podcast BC the Beatles that my friends Allison and Erica run, nice. which is, yeah, they had me on for their Pride Month episode. And it was me and a, another, and it was a panel of LGBTQ Beatles fans talking about our relationship to the Beatles music as queer people. So it was very cool. Yeah. So definitely check that out if you're a fan of this podcast. Podcast. That podcast is great. You know, they themselves just, it's, you know, the Beatles really, the reason really why they got so popular in the beginning was because they were adopted by young women as being really an exciting thing to be listening to in the 60s. Yeah. And now most Beatles fans are like, older straight guys like there's been a real shift in the fandom over the last few years and something that i think erica and allison are doing that's really exciting is they're like injecting different voices into that fandom which is like still a fairly you know pertinent pressing part of music fandom you know there are still like young beatles fans yeah which is amazing because you know there's not for example you know there's not you don't talk to a 15-year-old, and, and most of them aren't into Sly and the Family Stone, but at least some of them are are into the Beatles, you know, and they just, they really kind of transcend space and time in that way. So that's Very really cool. cool. And it's important to have those phases every once in a while. And the White Album's so good. Yeah, the White Album's... Yeah. Such a good example of all of them kind of at their best as individuals within the group, which I think makes it kind of a special Beatles album, you know? And I like also just the fact that it's like the album where, like, they did the Sgt. Pepper thing, and then they're like, let's, like, rock out again and be a band again, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, it is. It's Yeah, it's definitely a lot more rock-oriented, which is really cool. It's funny. What I was going to talk about listening to over the last few days is also Beatles-related. It's Beatles and Sly-related. Oh, I've, I've, <laughs> I've been Kyle's Kyle's interest has peaked. It's it's an album that Sly produced in 1966. That's a Billy Preston record. That's I, called. I, I haven't listened to it, but I in my research I saw that go on. So it's this really killer good swinging 60s album called Wildest Organ in Town. That's like very much a me record. Mm. So yeah, and it's got a lot of covers of a lot of different stuff, including covers of Beatles songs, covers of Stevie Wonder songs, covers of Rolling Stone songs. And then it has a proto, like a proto version of one of the songs that we're going to talk about on stand. So I'll hold on to that. That was co-written by Sly. But this album is is really wild and good. And then the other thing, just because we just had her on the show, Gretchen Unico just sent me yesterday two very, very well curated power pop playlists. So I feel like that's one of them is called Lots of Power Pop and the other one is called Power Pop Princess and focuses on female power pop, like female driven power pop bands and it's great because I think it sort of scratches that itch that we've been talking about the last few weeks of trying to get into it in a way that is accessible and fun for us and not the meandery more sleepy stuff you know we've had some nice thematic arcs on this podcast over the past few weeks we've been I mean, we've been killing it in so many ways, but that's just... <laughs> I know, not to toot our own horn. Well, that's what I think... I think that's what happens when you record once a week. Yeah, Is it right. gives them a little more of an arc than and it maybe... You get, maybe you get a thing on the brain, time. yeah. So, that being said, 
Uh, if you're enjoying this podcast and you've been listening the last few weeks, you'll know that what we've been doing is instead of giving money to us, because we're very happy to be doing this, but we think that there is certain causes and, and that should be amplified right now that are beyond two little Jewish music geeks like us. So we would love for you to give a donation if you like this podcast to Princess Janae Place. Princess Janae Place provides referrals to housing for chronically homeless LGBTQ adults in the New York tri-state area with direct emphasis on trans slash GNC people of color. And you can check them out at princessjanaeplace.org. That's P-R-I-N-C-E-S-S-J-A-N-A-E-P-L-A-C-E.org. So please give a donation to them in lieu of like a Patreon for us or a Venmo for us or something like that because we think it's really important to help those in need right now and especially those associated with with the black lives matter struggle that we're currently undergoing and will be for the foreseeable future yeah and, and i think that's a good segue into the album itself because you know we've been covering black artists that i think have had a influence on us over the last few weeks we did burning spear which i know looms large in your musical world kyle and then uh last week we covered fear of a black planet uh public enemies album with our friend mike which was a really interesting touchstone into where black rights struggle was in the early 90s and then here's this album by sly and the family stone which i think is a real interesting point in in time when it comes to the black white struggle uh, of the late 60s and then also just kind of I think that within this album we can really see a community trying to figure out how to express itself and how to reconcile a lot of different feelings within a musical context Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if you'd agree with that yeah you're nodding so yeah yeah and I didn't want to jump the gun but especially I kind of I think in a lot of people you group and compare this album and the spirit of this album to the next album another masterpiece there's a riot going on yep. not only tonally but i think his attitudes and the band's attitudes and their energy perfectly map the trajectory and the sort of the temperature of the black right struggle in the 60s you know throughout the 60s and then into the 70s i think the optimism leading to frustration and anger he maps that really well absolutely we get a lot of the a lot of the optimism kind of coming out of the civil rights struggle which i think is a perfect kind of i don't know i really like how we've kind of tackled it in terms of albums and you know kind of the different like you know, albums we've covered focusing on black rights. First we did Burning Spear, then we did Public Enemy. And the tone of this album is very different and a lot more optimistic, I think, than some of the other albums we've covered, which is a nice kind of talking about the different different parts of the black rights movement and history. That's absolutely true. And I, I think that that also makes this album very accessible for a lot of different types of people, which makes it, as I've been saying, kind of about all these records, but it does make it a really smart primer for people that want to understand the Black experience, especially in the late 60s, I mm-hmm. think, for in sure. the country. Yeah. So for those of you who might not know Sly and the Family Stone that well, a little background history on them. Sly and his siblings 
were born in Denton, Texas, and then moved around a lot and ended up in San Francisco. He was born into uh, the Church of God in Christ, which is a, a church that, sorry, that encouraged musical expression as a way of worship, which I think ties in a lot with the music that came out of this family and out of, out of, out of Sly himself. He was born, he was born Sylvester Stewart, and he had with his siblings a religious group that used to play out called the Stuart Four when he was younger. And then sort of into like middle school and high school, he formed like a doo-wop band and then like more of a soul band. And he was a, a musical prodigy. By 11, he could play guitar, bass, drums, and most notably keys, which is really his most famous instrument. So yeah, so that's sort of like the humble origins of uh, of Sly Stone. And then he had a band, uh, Freddie had a band, and then they were encouraged to merge their bands together. And they became first Sly and the Stoners, and then became Sly and the Family Stone. And the classic lineup that records on this album is Sly Stone, his sister Rose Stone, his brother Freddie Stone, and then Larry Graham, Greg Erica, Jerry Martini, and Cynthia Robinson. Cynthia being notable for me because she's the one that contributes a lot of like the really rapturous, like screamed vocals on their all track. All the squares go home. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. All the squares go home. Uh, and in this on this album, you know, she proclaims. Uh, really iconically sing a simple song you know uh, and I think that I, I think that something about these guys is that vocally they all contributed and I think that it really leads to this sort of communal there's like a real communal feel to this band despite the yeah. fact that Sly is clearly like a total strange musical genius mastermind right. who was quite you know difficult and yep. apparently at this time was really really great to work with and they mm -hmm. all got along really well and unfortunately and we have to acknowledge this you know he fell victim to drug addiction uh as did many members of the band and they never really had such a cohesive time of working together than they did working on this album mm -hmm. which is which is incredibly sad and he's never really recovered from his right. demons unfortunately mm -hmm. but this this album really sort of was just came just like eight nine months before all that shit started hitting the fan and it was a really an incredible period for them it also was released in may 3rd of 1969 so just about a month before they had their iconic appearance at woodstock and if you've never seen any of their footage at woodstock it is like it's insane i i, I like it's just really uh it's <laughs> just really at like moving 30 in the morning yeah they played at 3 30 in the morning and it feels it, it it is a set that feels somewhat like out of time and out of space <laughs> uh you know in a lot of ways and includes a, a really famous uh coda to the song higher where he's doing a call and response with the crowd and he says he wants to take them higher and then they're just like 
they're just like rocking it there. Yeah. I mean, it's this crowd of millions of people and they're all screaming higher. And it really feels like a, like a unifying moment of the 60s, you know, as uh, Martin Short would say on his album, You, Me, and the Music and You. I can't believe I'm bringing this up right now. As iconic as guns, flowers, and putting flowers into guns, <laughs> which is something that he said on that album that I think wow. is... So fucking funny. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's worth bringing up. Yeah. I'm not familiar with that album, but I mean, that's, uh, I mean, that's the 60s. That album, this is a bit of a tangent, is worth finding. I think it's all entirely on YouTube. Wow. And the first bit is the funniest bit, and that's where he says that. And it's him pretending to be like an NPR uh, DJ. And it's him like deconstructing the final chord of Once in a Life by the Beatles. Uh, and it is, uh, uh, or sorry, Day in the Life by the Beatles. And it is so funny. And that guy is such a funny guy. <laughs> anyway. All right. You yeah. piqued my interest. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So yeah, check that out, faithful listeners. So this record, for me, really came into my consciousness in my early 20s when I inherited my aunt's copy. She gave me a whole bunch of records. And before that, the song, uh, I Want to Take You Higher, the uh, instrumental riff from it was used in the completely not popular, but very important to me, Canadian 70s children's show, The Hilarious House of Dr. Frightenstein, oh, in, a, in a segment, I know. And it's so funny. And literally, since I was a child, I've been looking for the song because I liked it so much. And then there it popped up on this record. Mm-hmm. So it's a very weird kind of dumb way for me to get into this music, definitely. But it is notable in sort of my progression and, and the way I form my tastes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is one of mine. Had you listened to this all the way through before this, before this week? Or is this as a whole new to you? I know that Sly isn't new to you, but like, yeah, yeah, I had never listened to this album all the way through. I, I pretty much only knew the singles. Yeah, and what do you think about it as a as sort of a whole piece all the way through? I think it works great. It's really cool. It's definitely something that you can put... I mean, I ran to it this week. I think it definitely plays really well, and I think a lot of the deep cuts are... Or, like, the non-singles are really, really fun on the album. Somebody's Watching You, I think, is really fun. Yeah. Um, even Sex Machine, you can kind of just like rock out, and I was just running and kind of letting my mind wander. Um, yes, yeah, Sex Machine is a 13-minute long jam. Yeah. It's the second last song on the album. But, yeah, I think it's notable because I think it really showcases each gives each band member a a moment to shine in a solo and it just seems like they're having a lot of fun you can hear them all laughing at the end of sex machine and i think that's just a really great moment on the album they are playing around with like they're they're jamming out because they are just all incredible musicians and then also they're clearly like playing around with new studio technology like vocoders and things like that yeah yeah it's like like scatting through like an amplified vocoder on it right yeah well i'm glad i'm glad you enjoyed it i'm not totally surprised because yeah, really it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's a fucking great album yeah absolutely it's super super good let's get into it let's talk a little bit about some of the album tracks we wanted to cover i think we should start with higher cool and go from there so uh we're gonna listen to a little bit of i want to take you higher
Okay, cool. So this is kind of a fun one because if you wanted to, you could really track Sly's progression as a composer through the different versions of the song because this is actually the third version of this song. The first the, the first version of this song in its like prototypical form was a song called Advice that he co-wrote with Billy Preston for that album that I mentioned mm. earlier, but does have the I Want to Take You Higher uh, lyric in it and is like quite energetic. And I think a, a very good version of the song. Then the, the second version of the song was from the 1968 LP Dance to the Music. And I it's a little more relaxed and uh, I don't like it as much as the other two versions. But then when we get to this version is like takes it to the level of being like super rapturous and also psychedelic and it's like definitely the most frenetic version of the song and I think this is something that we talk about a lot on the show but I want to bring up again it's sort of the line about like where does religious music begin and where does it mm. end because th this is clearly written for a popular secular audience mm -hmm. but to me this owes itself so much to the way that gospel call and responses work yeah. and just but it feels like it just is like feels like it's almost a traditional gospel spiritual with just like a bunch of like psychedelic fuzz laid on top of it in a way that makes it really accessible right and uh yeah i you know falls in with the great tradition of you know um you know r&b and soul singers sort of blaspheming by you know secularizing this like religious music in that way but obviously you know we can look at it with a contemporary lens and see you know, it, it almost does have a religious, uh, like even lyrically, let alone like energetically, it has like a religious uh, message and feeling. So, yeah, clearly. And Sly, not only, as you mentioned, came out of the church, like as, as a lot of soul and R&B singers did, but I think he later in life actually became a, a pastor or preacher again in some form. So, yeah, he always had a relationship with the church. And also, you know, just talking about religious music, just that, and especially in the black church, that emphasis and centering of the organ, um, which Sly does on a lot of the songs, and especially in this one. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. And, and then, you know, you look at the Woodstock performance. I mean, that's like, a he has like a congregation. <laughs> yeah, he does. He has a congregation of literally, uh, you know, over a million unwashed hippies. You know yeah, that it all right. that it all come together for, for for this music festival. You know, and made it such a defining moment. And also, I think the sentiments of uh, uh, on this album and with this song, "I Want to Take You Higher," as we talked about, they embody the late 60s optimism that the youth movement was feeling yeah. that got a real uh, dose of reality, I would say, into the early 70s, which I think is so exemplary of the difference between this album and There's a Riot Going On, mm -hmm. which are both really, really good albums. And the three songs that we chose happen to be three of the more optimistic songs on this, on this album. 
Uh-huh. But this album certainly slides into dealing with race relations in a way that's like a lot more confrontational. Sure. It's just that those aren't the songs that like we just personally decide to focus on. Like the second song on the album is is like incredible, and uh, it's called uh, uh, "Don't Call Me N Word Whitey," and I'm not going to use the N word because I'm a white guy. But um, it's amazing that song because you it really is an embodiment of the racial tension at the time within the like a, a very clear musical context mm-hmm. and you can really feel the the way that song is composed it, it feels like it's about to boil over into into violence but it never quite does mm-hmm. that song then we get into tracks that are a little more you know celebratory and a little more cooperative uh, and and you know this is notable that really this band was the first charting interracial band that ever existed, mm-hmm. and that th- that was a real example that you know of white allyship and how white people could learn how to work with black people in a in a in a larger context. For sure, yeah. There's a lot I agree with, and a lot I want to talk about there. But yeah, just in terms of the interracial aspect, it's also interesting to note that i mean it's not just interracial it's it's also presenting an image of racial harmony but it's also led by a black man yes person in the position of power in this group is a black man but it's also his active decision to you know it's him going out of his way to include and invite white people and people of different races into his organization and something he did and something he stuck to even after around this time he became more involved with the or had stronger relationships with the black panther movement who were actively encouraging him to get rid of the white members of his band which he refused to do going back to the tone of the album i think the second track you know don't call me n-word whitey that song is definitely aggressive and it's brooding and i th- i think it's a really apt description it feels like it's going to boil over and it's about it's about overt racism um, yep. and it's sung by and written by sly stone who's a black man and the other part of the song is don't call me whitey n-word yeah and, it flips back and forth yeah yeah and it's and he's talking about both sides i think there's an emphasis on and he's really talking to and from the perspective of a black person but he's also i think in this song he's talking about it's about equality of races which is a which is a particular i think it comes out of the early 60s civil rights kind of perspective calling for let's all just get along we're all equal which is right but it's that language and that type of language is very uh specifically rooted i think in the early 60s civil rights struggle as opposed to what i think the 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 voices that took precedence in the late 60s into the early 70s which was more of the black power black panther more militant uh form of you know, uh, black activism and maybe black nationalism, which was just the, it was, it, you know, it kind of came in the wake of this. This was kind of like the last hurrah for, I think, that early 60s, you know, form of uh, like Martin, more, more in the language of Martin Luther King and Bayard Rustin, whereas 
the, uh, after this and you know when it came to there's a riot going on it was more dissatisfaction with okay the civil rights struggle got us the voting rights act and an m to jim crow but there's still all these problems and there's inequality and these things still exist and there was frustration and anger and resentment over that fact it's like the struggle isn't over and i think these two albums kind of map that realization yeah absolutely and i also think that this album is an example of a group of people trying to find the language to move the their their movement and their struggle forward mm-hmm. you know and i think that that's really what we're seeing here is like the seeds we're seeing some seeds of the 70s black power movement sort of like planted in this album and then they mm-hmm. i would say they you know they come to fruition in there's a riot going on mm-hmm. you know which I think is is really interesting because I agree. I agree. Like I think that there's certain things with with that song, and then also with a song like "Somebody's Watching You" mm-hmm. as well, where they're they're almost there with with those sentiments that you just expressed, but they just haven't. It hasn't quite. It hasn't quite gotten into their musical language yet. You know, I bet the discussions were happening, but not quite the discussions were happening when it came to recording this album. And they and they you know nineteen. 19- 1968 is a famous year for a lot of things, you know, or the late 60s in general. It's like you have the summer of love on one hand, but 68, you start to get, you know, culmination of a lot of race riots. And and so I, I don't think, I think there was still optimism, but there was a growing awareness of this new thing and this new, like you said, uh, a growing adoption of a new uh, language that, yeah, I think, comes into more fruition on there's a riot going on. Yeah, yeah. And it's really interesting talking about that in terms of, I think, the current moment that we're in. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like that's been a big part of the conversation, at least on social media, regarding the Black Lives Matter movement, at least among a lot of, you know, the white people in my life, Mm. is, wow, isn't this so exciting that this is finally happening and haven't we all been wanting this for a long time? And then the flip side of that being, well, actually, this has been happening for a long time and this is a continuing struggle and this is continue this is going to continue to take a long time if we really want to achieve the dismantling that we want to be doing Mm -hmm. uh and i think that that just kind of comes out in the way that we've talked about all these albums that are now significantly older than we are Mm -hmm. but are still very relevant and we can still draw from in terms of putting them into a historical context and also what can we draw from them right now in terms of their relevancy yeah. Mm-hmm. So this song, just to get back to higher for a second, was covered by like tons of different people. Mm-hmm. And I just want to throw out some props to at least some of the covers. I think that the best cover of the song and maybe the best version of the song is Ike and Tina's version. Oh, it's yeah. really good. And then Duran Duran did a cover in the 90s, which I think is kind of sleepy, unfortunately. It's just a little slow. It feels like it kind of misses the point of what makes the song so driven and exciting. Mm-hmm. And then just kind of for fun, I just because I think it's, it's interesting and and. And for me, not surprising, but might be surprising to our listeners, Hanson covered this. 
for oh. a, a covers album and it is surprisingly good because a lot of people say that about a lot of hands and stuff well yeah i mean they're definitely a, a band on the list for me to cover on the on the show because I, I actually quite like them and have a lot of respect for them but something that's so funny about them is that they're these little blonde kids from oklahoma who were raised on like funk and soul traditions and it really comes out of their cover of hire which is like not a huge surprise so those are all worth checking out uh if you like this song i think we should uh give a little listen to you can make it if you try sure yep uh yeah let's give it a spin This is your choice. This was not a single. Uh, I'm wondering what drew you to, to talk about this one. Well, I think it's just like a really, really fun, catchy song. And interesting, uh, you know, I think on this set, it kind of stands out as, I mean, a lot of this album is just so ahead of its time. Uh, mm-hmm. like it, it's, it, this is a, this feels like a 70s album to me that, just came out in the 60s you yeah. know i think this is the template for so much 70s like soul funk that came after it but this song is really fun and feels more like kind of like a 60s soul r&b song like fun dancey song i mean it still has the elements of like the distinct sly elements but you know it's kind of rooted in a lot of that like 60s soul tradition which i think is really fun and because i think they're so such a versatile band they're a r&b band but they're also a rock band and they're also a pop band and this song is just really kind of uh, emphasizing that like 60s soul side of uh, 60s r&b um side of the group and uh, it's actually a cover of a late 50s song by gene allison and this i mean the two versions could not be more different it's like the 50s the from 1958 the gene allison version is like kind of like a slow almost like doo-wop type of song yeah, I think that uh, really all that Sly drew from the Gene Allison version is the chorus more than anything. Right. And everything else he, he rewrote, including writing a whole bunch of new lyrics for it and changing it melodically almost 100%. But it, but it is worth noting because that version of the song that Gene Allison wrote did reach number three on the black music charts when it came out in 58. So it was like a fairly popular song at the time for this style of music. But yeah, I I totally agree that Sly takes this song and kind of like 
futurizes it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, and, and I think that the main way that he does that is through the breakdowns in the song. I think that the breakdowns are really notable here because this is once again a chance for different members of the band to shine but they i think that in this song they always take you by surprise when they happen mm. and that's one of the things that like leads to its danceability you get the classic like drum loop break beat thing and yeah it just rocks and and i think also just to go back to the sort of like you know i can see why sly, you know sly got his start when he was a kid he actually had some few like local charting hits when he was a teenager doing like you know vocal group kind of doo-wop 50s type thing so this mm -hmm. music is like in his blood or, or at least the original gene allison type yeah, it's part of it's part of what makes him him for sure. Yeah, and then you know, just to talk about that a little bit, uh, just because we haven't brought it up yet, but I think it's so much part of the flavor of this album is that he was a DJ on a black radio station, KSOL, uh, an R and B station in San Francisco. So you know, he basically. He had, a, in my opinion, a dream job. Like, oh my God, like being a mid-60s black radio DJ in right. San Francisco. But he would integrate into his sets a lot of stuff by the Stones and by the Beatles. And he also produced at the time for the Bo Brummels, which were a, a white band out of San Francisco as well. So he also comes from like a popular music background. And then like, if you were to talk to the Beatles... Or the Stones, you know, they would have claimed a lot of soul or R&B as influences. So it, 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 Sly was, I think, one of the first people, like big musical thinkers that was just like, well, all this music is actually the same music, despite the fact that we're like separating it in different categories for marketability more than anything, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, he'll like, I think his, in a lot, I've heard him kind of say or hint at that his first love really was rock and roll and it, it uh and you can hear it right you know and but rock and roll when he was listening to it as a kid meant black black music it was uh, you know as much as it was white music you know very much so and and you can't deny the roots of rock and roll being a, a black art form for oh, sure for sure and then through this lens of him clearly hanging out with these you know, in in the San Francisco scene during the late '60s, because there's a uh, there's I said it before for uh, for hire, but there's just a, a fuzz over this entire album that feels like it's really tripped out and feels like a, like a late uh, '60s, uh, like almost like Jefferson Airplane style, you know, uh, psychedelic record. Yeah. Uh, I think you can hear that on this song a lot as well. The way that it progresses. And his use of guitar, mainly rhythm guitar and bass in the mix being a little more prevalent, which yeah. I think it sort of uh, brings it into rock a little more as well. Yeah, for sure. And I, But I think also I heard on this song kind of that like treble, almost like trebly, a little fuzzy, like guitar, rhythm guitar, kind of oh, yeah. to me like early stacks or like... Um, Definitely. Or like, uh, like, yeah, like Sam and Dave or something like that, you know, like that 60s, like R&B kind of sound. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's, it's definitely all there. Mm -hmm. uh, also, too, 
Uh, the something else that I think really futurizes this song is just that lyric. I think it's worth pointing out. Don't let the plastic bring you down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like really a fascinating sentiment for late '60s, and it's just worth kind of kind of noting there. Yeah, don't let don't let all those synthetic substances make you sick. Yeah. I mean, like also yeah, just like consumer culture in general. Like we're getting yep. sick of this. Yeah, absolutely. And that was 50 years ago. And now here we are on two computers made in sweatshops talking over headsets. Yeah. Oh, what a what a era we live in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, after that sad note, I feel like I need to be a little galvanized. Um, so maybe we should listen to a little bit of Stand. Let's do it. Make, make us feel a little better. Woohoo! was you know clearly it's it's the it's the album it's the title track which i think is why we wanted to talk about it together and i think something about this one is that it really like it it really is the so what we were talking about before it lays down the template for the way the 70s is going to operate in terms of being a, a very different type of right struggle. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like there is a lot of uh, lyrical content in the song that is about, it sort of like has this like self-determinationist attitude, which I think is, you know, since this point in time, we've learned that, you know, you could be as, as, self-determinationist and as optimistic as you want but sometimes you can't overcome systematic factors of oppression yeah. right you know and and that whole kind of idea behind like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is is actually a really unfair idea that propagates you know the toxic form of capitalism that we're currently in yeah, you know but one thing i'll say about that is for one i don't think those two messages are necessarily mutually exclusive it's just a question of emphasis and yes as long as you don't de-emphasize the reality of historical and systemic injustice i think a message of self-empowerment and self-confidence and personal responsibility is 
can be really empowering as long as you don't discount and de-emphasize those other systemic realities. And also, I think the other thing is that it matters who is saying it, you know, because I think a lot of that bootstrap mentality comes from, you know, patronizing white people. <laughs> I was going to say elites, but it comes from all, you know, uh, from every, you know, from every, just from, from the white establishment in general. So I think, you know, I still think it's like, you know, I think it gave way to a more of an emphasis, rightfully so, on some of the more systemic issues that were, you know, keeping, you know, people of color back. But I still think it's a really important and empowering message and song. 100%. And and uh, very much like what we've been talking about for other uh, songs on the record, I think that it is, once again, laying a really interesting lyrical template for, you know, the way that this movement moved into the 70s as well. And touches on some really interesting themes of identity that I think are interesting here. Uh, like, I really love the line, uh, in the end, you will still be you, one that's done all the things you set out to do. Because I think that that's definitely something that, uh, at least uh, that I can empathize with, you know, as someone like, as a queer guy that's gone through his own right struggle, is this like really scary idea that I think is a falsity that if you fight for your rights and if you stand up for yourself, will you lose some sort of an essential sense of self because it'll become too consuming? Mm. And at least that's that's how I interpret that line. And I think it's a really beautiful way to do that. And then there's also the line that I think is so you know, hinting towards the fact that, you know, that the the movement was going to get more militant and needed to get more militant. And that's the line. It's the truth that the truth makes them so uptight. Mm. Uh, Yeah. And, And that line, I just think is a so well written the way he uses truth in all its different meanings within the course of a line. It's worth breaking down. And then also the use of, the word them when we all know who them is responding to or is 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 referencing without them saying without sly and 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 the family stone having to sing sing it out loud uh, which is so smart and so cool and makes this uh song i think such like a community driven song you know yeah let alone the like gang vocals on the uh on the chorus that's that is like feels like this rising swell that gospel-esque and it just just screaming stand is just like so powerful it's hugely powerful it's beautiful absolutely yeah and then and then finally, the last lyric I just wanna I wanna give some some highlights to is the line "You have you to complete, and there is no deal," as well, because that is very much I think such a smart line about finding sense of self. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think is also something that we are all still discussing as a as a society where where is the balance between working on yourself to make sure that you're good for the fight and to make sure that you can be an open empathetic good person Mm -hmm. and where does that line end and the beginning of your responsibility to the larger world begin you know 
and, right. and how those are all mixed together. And I think that that's in the song and it's like so incredible that it's in this pop song from the 60s that really could be looked at as being a little bit of a lighter song mm. you know this was a hit on the radio this wasn't like anything particularly deep or underground or even considered that threatening by white people at the time but here it is you know yeah and that's what makes it all the more powerful is i think we've come i think that's kind of been a realization about pop culture in general let alone pop music is that what maybe used to be seen as disposable is, you know, it's, it's all the more effective because of that. Yeah, absolutely. That because it made people not treat it seriously, it got its message across to the people that needed it at the time, mm -hmm. you know? And one more little anecdote about this one that you probably learned in your research that I think is fascinating. He tried out an early mix of this song at a San Francisco dance club. Yes. And it was warmly received, but it wasn't over the top. People didn't go crazy for it. Mm -hmm. And then he added the breakdown at the end of it, yep. which the a bunch of the other members of the band weren't available to play on. Yeah. So he hired all these session musicians. So it's actually a different group of people playing the breakdown for the song. And <laughs> something that I think is interesting about that is one of the band members said, I can't remember who it was. It might've been Martini said that people said to them, you know, maybe this should have been the song. Is right. the I know everyone. I mean, it, it does rule, but it's so funny that there were like, people are like, just get to the breakdown. That's the best part. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. And it does begin to sort of get into like a very 70s musical concept of what is the get down of the song? Right. What's the, what's the song? What's the part of this song that 10 years later is going to be looped over and over again by Grandmaster Flash in the Bronx. Right. And definitely it is this breakdown. <laughs> like yeah, 100% sure. the na 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 part. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> which is, which is awesome. But also it does take the song one, once again, into this just like insane, rapturous place that is beyond language and is like pure feeling and is beyond rational thought, which I think is one of the things that pop music can do so well when, you know, words aren't important anymore, you know? Yeah, and I think um, it also shows that like that part of the song maybe is like, apolitical but i mean to really but is it is it though do we think it's apolitical you know what i mean sure yeah well just so it, i mean but that's i mean that's another thing to talk about like in what way is it political just like his ability as like a black or black person or and like a interracial band to just like that expression of like joy and ecstasy or like that hearkening back to like the black church or like the 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 right to be apolitical you know i don't know i think i think those are both really good interpretations i would also just argue that when you are dissenting even when it's incredibly frightening and when you're pushing yourself and when it's uncomfortable or you're facing actual you know violence by by dissenting even even during those times, you are still, uh, there's a joyousness to it that I think is expressed in that breakdown really, really well. Hmm. Um, and that uh, something about doing those actions is that 
if you're doing them because you believe in them, there is a there is a joy to them that I think can be expressed in song very, very clearly. You know, and I think that that's happening really well in this song and in the coda specifically, where it's like, okay, now we've really laid out our basically our manifesto for this song, and now let's get the fuck out into the street and stand, and that's the end of the song. And also feels like a more direct kind of it draws on the same tradition as like a Martha Reeves and the Vandellas like mm. dancing in the streets, you know, which is just a few years earlier. It's much more subtle, but is also a song about rioting. Mm. You know, that song, this is this, this, the end of the song, I think really just kind of draws from, from really similar places. Yeah. And then, you know, just going off, uh, the Martha Vandellas thing, you know, it, you know, if you thought, where it was like subtly, you know, dancing in the street, it was uh, sudden, subtly radical in the 60s. Um, you know, just 20 years later, David Bowie and Mick Jagger would be singing this and literally making out in a music video. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, it just has a great radical tradition. It does. It has a great radical tradition adopted by many different types of people over uh, a, a long and, and storied history of time. Yeah. For sure. So, yeah. So, you know, Sly, after this album, certainly had his share of musical successes. Mm -hmm. And this album and There's a Riot Going On are heavily quoted as being huge influences for mainly for funk and soul artists into the 70s. And I also have to just quickly shout out Fresh, the 1973 album, which I love awesome i've never listened to that all the way through oh, it's I will. really fun it's like uh it's like a lot chiller smoother but it's like really 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 good yeah yeah you know he certainly had a lot to contribute but definitely you know it's sad uh his life has been so publicly tumultuous since his peak period and I have a, a friend who's a musician, my friend Oliver Ignatius, who very readily compares Sly specifically to Mozart as mm. being someone who just is just like too talented for this world and uh, and will be looked at in hundreds of years as just being an incredible innovator when it came to his style of music and, and just music as, as a as a human art form. And that's that's cool and I think that it's worth I think it's worth th thinking about him that way. Mm. Yeah. You know and, and over the years, you know, musicians have tried to pay tribute to him. There is I would be remiss not to mention a completely dreadful tribute to him that he appeared in at the Grammys in 2008. Mm -hmm. I don't know if, if you caught that this year uh, during your research, no. but it features uh, Maroon 5 and Aerosmith. Oh my God. <laughs> and then Sly comes on out at the very end and very weakly sings like a verse of stand with all these people around him and then apparently went right back to the hotel room he was living in after he was done his his like 30 second appearance and you can tell that like there's a disconnect and there's a sadness and, and he also uh, you know this is now older history but he did uh tour with original members of the Family Stone 
in the late 2000s as well. Mm -hmm. He did a few shows, but unfortunately, he's notorious for ending sets early. There's one set where he said to the audience, um, I just got to go piss. I'm going to be right back. And then he never came back. Uh, This would happen a lot with him. And I think that he's unfortunately a real tortured guy. And Mm -hmm. I think that he is someone who we should be like really grateful for that he's given us the music that he has. You yeah, know, and, and the the best we could hope for, I would love to see him kind of have like a Brian Wilson sort of late life renaissance, just in terms of you know, like you see Brian Wilson play, and I, I saw this really nice description of Brian Wilson kind of being like you know a va- a vase that was broken, and you know it's now been glued back together, but it's still kind of it was a gorgeous vase to begin with and now the fact that it's glued together kind of gives it its this unique charm that's lovely i I agree with that yeah from seeing him several times yeah right and i could i could imagine a world where there's like where sly could have the same kind of thing but i mean he's just it's just been so tough for so long yeah, absolutely. And and I wish that for him. I think that's, yeah. that's beautiful. I think that's a lovely, lovely way to, to end our discussion of him. Mm. Let's hope for, let's hope for the repairs that Sly desperately needs. Yep. This has been another episode of Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louis Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. So yeah, so just want to reiterate, if you want to support us, you can, you know, follow us on social media, do all that kind of stuff, rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, you can you can donate to Princess Janae Place at princessjanaeplace.org. Kyle, it's always a pleasure. Woo! Awesome. We will see you all around like a record. Kick the jukebox is so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh, yeah!